Three years ago on this podcast, Antipodes Portfolio Manager Andy Gibson and I took a deep dive into the auto industry with a focus on electric vehicles and autonomy. Yeah, so Tesla launched their first EV in 2008, and since that date, they've largely had the market to themselves. But the times are changing, and over the next few years, the industry dynamics will look very different. That was Andy back in 2021, and you can find that discussion if you scroll back through our older episodes. But now, with recent news headlines such as BYD selling more electric vehicles than Tesla and Toyota's push with solid-state batteries, it's time to revisit the topic. What's the state of play today relative to prior views and what can we expect to see over the next few years? Andy, EV volumes falling short of expectations, the rise of Chinese automakers, autonomy. It's hard to know where to start. There's a lot going on. Um, Maybe let's take a step down memory lane and look at what's changed over the past three years. Like every other industry, COVID brought significant chaos and change. As the pandemic broke, this industry, which has been through many cycles, assumed that the standard downcycle playbook would be repeated and that demand would collapse, so they began to throttle production. At the same time, you started to see COVID-induced supply chains emerge, which led to the shortage of various parts, notably semiconductors. So global production fell. Global auto production, which had averaged about 22.5 million units per quarter in the three years pre-COVID, fell to about 18 million units per quarter from the start of 2020 through to mid-22. So you lost a lot of units. But this cycle wasn't like prior ones. It transpired that the aggressive monetary and fiscal intervention by various authorities resulted in the consumer being strong. But despite wanting to buy cars... That consumer couldn't get them because the OEMs didn't have enough cars to sell due to weak production. And as ever, when you have a mismatch between supply and demand, the clearing mechanism is price, which has meant that the OEMs have enjoyed a a sustained period of supernormal margins that's now starting to normalise. I think if you go back to our discussion three years ago as well, we focused on the two big technology trends impacting the sector, which were electrification and autonomy. They're, They're still there. But the debate around both of those has moved on a fair bit in the intervening period. For a number of reasons, the pace of electrification, which was seen as inexorable and unstoppable, has slowed. And the perception of how quickly autonomous vehicles would turn up en masse has also been pushed to the right. Now, those trends being deferred has helped the incumbent OEMs, both from a financial perspective, as they've been able to scale back investment, but also from a perception perspective about their relative technological positioning. On the flip side, what's worked against them has been the Chinese OEMs becoming much more of a credible threat than we thought they were three years ago. And I think we'll touch on this later, but the debate around that is a bit more nuanced than some of the more sensationalist headlines would have you believe. But there are a number of Chinese OEMs who've made really quite impressive steps. So it's been an interesting time and uh, an interesting three years. Now, I want to I want to delve into all of the points you've raised, but let's start with the auto cycle listening to your comments, this sounds like an unusual cycle. So what are the implications of this? Well, auto demand usually tracks other discretionary purchases. They are discretionary, albeit high value. And what you saw during COVID was that people were stuck at home buying white goods, electronics, things to make their house nice. When things opened up again, the consumer was still well off due to those fiscal transfers from government. And they wanted to buy cars, but they couldn't. 
we've attempted to put some numbers around this, and it's quite dependent on your assumption of where the trend line for demand or replacement demand is. And those aren't especially firm numbers. But we think that auto demand was curtailed by somewhere up to 30 million units during COVID, which is a big number when you think that pre-COVID global auto sales were around 90 million units. And what happened during COVID was highly unusual in that there was a synchronized global phenomenon around vehicle supply, rather than due to some idiosyncratic macro effect in a given country or region, which has typically been the hallmark of prior prior industry downturns. Now, that supply-driven consumption deferral gives us confidence that the outlook for unit volumes for the sector is, is actually quite encouraging, assuming nothing terrifying happens with the macro or, or interest rates. Cars are a finite life asset. Transportation networks globally are geared around them. And for most people, having a car is indispensable rather than optional. The prevailing view coming out from the OEMs with their full year 2023 reporting has been that the market will be about flat in 2024. At this point, we'd probably be tempted to take the over on that. The flip side of that optimism around volumes is that some normalisation of price mix benefit that we talked about earlier will happen as volumes come back. That's expected and it's discounted in earnings forecasts, but it is a critical watch item for us given how unusual this cycle has been. And by normalisation in price and mix, are you saying that supply is increasing and it's increasing across that full range of price points. So consumers, I like what happened in that post-COVID period or during COVID, consumers aren't forced to buy the premium option with all the bells and whistles just to secure a vehicle. And and this will have implications for overall pricing. Yeah, that's spot on. During the COVID supply crunch, most OEMs sensibly and logically allocated their available components to higher mix, higher margin models to maximise earnings and cash flow. Cheap cars were really quite hard to find and that distortion is now normalizing not every oem did this though the notable standout is toyota who are currently saying that their future backlog is actually a richer mix than the current the current units they're selling and i I guess that's just another demonstration of how toyota does things a bit differently to the rest of the industry whenever the industry seems to be tacking they seem to be jibing okay let's let's turn to evs you mentioned that demand has undershot market expectations. And at a, at a very high level, an EV is still more expensive than a comparable internal combustion engine model, and the infrastructure is still nascent. And I suspect this is weighing on customer preferences. But can you provide more insight into what is driving lacklustre demand? We, we need to talk about China and the world outside China as different answers. Outside of China, there are a lot of moving pieces, but the upshot is that the pace of EV adoption has slowed. If we take it to the level of an individual consumer, to make the transition from a combustion engine car to an electric one, a car buyer needs to believe that there are choices for them with good range at an affordable price, and that has to be complemented by ample and reliable public charging which logically needs to be powered by renewable energy. Otherwise, you're just moving from an internal combustion engine to an external combustion engine. Now, only the first two of those fall under the purview of the OEMs. And whilst they've all got good product now, most of that product is still at price points, which is far too high for the mass market. At the same time, the green charging infrastructure needed to support mass electrification also hasn't turned up as expected or anywhere near as reliably as hoped. 
Then you've had various countries rolling back their plans around the dates by which they're going to ban internal combustion engines, like has happened recently in the UK, or stories of nations watering down emissions rules, particularly in the near term, as the US is reported to be doing imminently. And then the EV purchase incentive programs that help drive demand have also been pulled back in many Western countries in response to domestic political or fiscal situations. Compounding all of that, as interest rates have risen, that higher price for EVs that you talked about has been a deterrent to consumers as their monthly payment has to rise, whilst electricity prices have risen a lot in Europe and have crimped the total cost of ownership benefit that was pushed as the industry as one of the reasons to make that electric switch. Mm. And what's also hurt the total cost of ownership is that it's turned out that many electric vehicles, particularly Teslas, are very expensive to fix and to insure, which is why many of the leasing companies are dropping them from their fleets, but which also has an impact on the total cost of ownership. And m Many of these things we can quantify with numbers, and we've done those exercises. But the other intangible factor is that that breathless consumer excitement around getting an EV seems to have dissipated just anecdotally from conversations and from what you read in the press. It, it does remain a possibility that the appetite to get an expensive EV that we saw over the past couple of years was, for, for want of a better word, a bit of a fad. Mm, I mean, that's really interesting. And, and, and what about China, which you said was different or is different? The Chinese automakers are selling EVs at very attractive price points. You know, I think you can buy a, a BYD EV for, you know, 15,000 US dollars. Has that supported domestic demand in China? Yes, but it hasn't just been about price. Trends in China have been very different. The domestic OEMs have done a great job in, in leveraging the domestic supply chain to deliver affordable products. And governmental policy has been much more complete in stimulating demand. But even there, the, the pace of growth has slowed. If we bring some numbers to this, in 2023, China's EV penetration was 26%, i.e. just over one in four of every vehicle sold in China in 23 was a fully electric vehicle. Now, that sounds impressive when you benchmark it against the 8% that NAFTA delivered or the little over 15% that Europe saw. But that was only a 2% year-on-year increase in penetration from the levels seen in 2022. By contrast, there was a near 10% increase from 2021 into 2022 in EV penetration. So even in the world's largest EV market, penetration is slowing. Mm. So are you negative about the prospects for EVs? You'd think so from what I've just said, but no, but... Despite that laundry list of issues, we're not negative on EV volumes. We think people lost sight of the scale of the industry and some of these other tertiary requirements that are needed to affect a transition to, to electric vehicles. Ultimately, in addition to consumer preference, which is proving more fickle than expected a couple of years ago, the driver of EV demand is regulation around the emissions of cars that an OEM sells. And... If you extract it to the corporate level, a fully electric vehicle is just one of a number of compliance tools that an OEM has, alongside plug-in hybrids, other hybrids, mild hybrids, and other technologies like hydrogen, which are nascent but may have a future role in decarbonizing transport. And whilst it also doesn't look good from a corporate perspective, it's also worth saying that OEMs 
do have the option of just not meeting their CO2 emission requirements and paying the fines formalised in the legislation if that turns out to be the most cost-efficient route. What the OEMs are trying to do is solve a simultaneous equation to get to the right emissions number. And electric vehicles are going to be a critical part of that. We think that electric vehicle sales in Europe are going to need to increase from around the 15% they were in 2023 to somewhere in the low 20 percentage to make the prevailing 2025 standards, and that they're going to need to increase significantly again to make the prevailing 2030 standards. So no, we're not negative on electric vehicle volumes, though the pricing and margins that can be earned from selling them is far less clear. And... And what you're saying as well is that the product route that automakers automakers take to reduce the overall emissions of their fleet will, to some extent, depend on where they can make money. And that's going to depend on the competitive environment. That's right. The OEMs are facing the twin tasks of catering to customer demand whilst meeting their regulatory requirements. And they're going to attempt to do that in a way that maximises the profit stream from selling those cars. And doing that maximisation exercise will partly depend on where the competition is greatest. It's a complex challenge, but we think that they've got the wherewithal to manage it. And when we spoke three years ago, there was really only one player in town in electric vehicles, and that was Tesla. And you commented at the time that the incumbents were scaling up and the competition was coming. And, And that's exactly what's happened. But the competition's not just come from the incumbents, has it, Chinese automaker BYD. It has now overtaken Tesla in EV sales. So then how has the perception of winners and losers changed? It's changed significantly. When we last spoke, one of the things we thought strangest about the prevailing view on Tesla was that it would continue to make excess returns as competition came. Now, due to COVID, that competition took a lot longer to arrive than we thought but it's here now and you don't really need to be some academic student of capital cycle investing to understand what's going on here it's incredibly rare to see an industry attract so much capital investment in such a short space of time and for returns to hold up or i guess that was the case until ai came along but when you have a lot of supply coming at a time of weaker demand prices are inevitably going to suffer and it's not just supply. You have a lot of really good product that's come. It, you've got to remember that until the rise of the big tech companies, the incumbent auto industry was the world's biggest spender on R&D. And it's still right up there. These are technologically advanced companies with real engineering pedigree who are now turning out many EVs with better real-world ranges than a Tesla, faster charging speeds, lower insurance cost, a proper service network, and all of these tertiary factors that also influence a car-buying decision. So this competition is now real, and it's taking its toll on the economics of the EV market, as well as the perceptions of the relative positioning of the car makers. For the incumbent OEMs, that margin hit that they suffer on selling electric vehicles is manageable as they still have that combustion engine portfolio from which they can make rich returns to fund the necessary electric vehicle sales to meet their regulatory requirements. Compared to their electric vehicle siblings, those internal combustion engine businesses have been starved of capital. So if you think about that capital cycle framework that we talked about earlier, an industry starved of capital that's just still seeing demand should point to ongoing healthy returns on an admittedly shrinking, slowly top line. You can kind of see what we're talking about 
in numbers as well. Like over the past couple of years, Tesla's auto gross margin, which if recut to make it comparable with the incumbent OEMs, has more than halved. By comparison, Toyota, not the world's greatest proponent of electric vehicles historically, just posted one of the highest margin quarters in the history of the company. So this isn't just an academic exercise. You can see it in the financials of the companies and how they've transitioned over the last three years. And what about Chinese competition? Well, you know, the auto sector is never short of an existential stalking horse. And (laughs) the the new one is competition from Chinese OEMs. And for the incumbent OEMs, this is most acute in Europe. So let's talk about that. The the numbers here are a bit more nuanced than some of the headlines would have you believe. In in 2023, Chinese OEMs had a little bit over 3% of the European car market up from 2% in 2015. And so it's been relatively slow gains to date, and it varies a bit by segment, but they're still relatively small in the overall context. It's worth saying that around half of Chinese automotive exports were for non-Chinese brands, i.e. these are international brands using China as an export base, of which Tesla is comfortably the largest part at well over half. If we transition the discussion to electric vehicles, which is where the focus is, then the Chinese are overrepresented. The Chinese share of the European EV market has grown to around 8%, but that's been roughly stable for around the last six months or so. And and so far is really only one company, which is Syke, that owns the MG brand, which is a legacy British company that they acquired out of bankruptcy. Now, we're not naive about the threat of, of the Chinese OEMs. We know that BYD wants to enter the market, as do other Chinese OEMs, not least as by some estimates, there's 10 million units of overcapacity for electric vehicles in China. So these are companies with factories looking for a home for their product. But autos are an incredibly political sector. They make up 7% of Eurozone GDP. It employs 13 million people in Europe. And given trade tensions, full market entry looks increasingly likely to need a domestic presence, which is what you saw with the Japanese and Korean OEMs when they went into the US market in size. And that will help the competitive situation. If you want some numbers around this, as things stand today, the Chinese OEMs have a fairly sizable cost advantage. Stellantis estimated around 20% on a landed basis in Europe. But if they ultimately localize, some or all of that will disappear and they'll need dealers and a service network and all of these other things that you need. So we think the Chinese OEMs are impressive. They've made impressive strides and... We had underestimated them three years ago, but we think that they're probably a longer dated and smaller threat to the Western incumbents that is often perceived. But, you know, like I just said, we've been wrong on this before and we may be wrong again. So knowing that makes it another critical watch item for us. And adding to that or adding to that broader competitive backdrop is that hybrids have been a relatively more popular choice amongst consumers than expected. So again, if I turn back to our conversation three years ago, the consensus was that full full battery electric vehicles were really the only way forward. Meanwhile, you had the likes of Toyota, along with you know Honda and Hyundai Motors, continuing to pour billions of dollars into hybrid electric vehicles. So if we fast forward back to today, that decision doesn't look so silly. You know, hybrids have been more popular with consumers because 
they're more affordable than fully electric vehicles and they don't have that same anxiety over over driving range. And, you know, recently in the press, it was interesting that General Motors, um, which pretty much phased out its plug-in hybrids, recently announced it was going to reintroduce this technology. So a hybrid's more than just a stepping stone to full electric. Hybrids are proving to be a really cost-efficient alternative for consumers who want to lower their emissions but aren't yet ready to go fully electric. And most companies, other than the ones you listed, have really been quite dismissive of hybrids as a transition tool. Toyota's long been a vocal defender of the technology, and it seems increasingly likely that they've actually been right all along. And this is part of a broader debate, really, because there's there's a, a discussion to be had about whether it's better from an aggregate societal emissions perspective to put a load of cells into one fully electric vehicle or spread that same number out into three or four plug-in hybrid vehicles, modern versions of which have a fully electric range of up to 40 miles and which would cover the daily use cases of the vast bulk of drivers. So if used properly... You get the best of both worlds as a consumer. You get emission-free motoring for the vast bulk of your miles. You have no range anxiety. Uh, and, and you know that you're going to get to your destination without fear, which is still something that concerns a number of people. Now, what you've seen in electric vehicles is that policy choices have tended to be a much blunter instrument. But as with the resurgence of hybrids in the consumer perception, that often leads policy. And so there's, the, the debate is moving on. For what it's worth, for hybrids being more than a transition tool, to- Toyota have famously said that they think EV penetration globally is going to cap out somewhere about 30%. They've been right on hybrids so far, it seems, despite having faced a lot of criticism. And m- maybe they're right again. It's important to, I think, not be too wedded to a particular outcome in this industry, one where the technology and regulation is changing as rapidly as it is. From an investment perspective, we we necessarily have to remain open to all possible outcomes. And I guess that's a really non-committal way of answering your question, which is one of those possible outcomes is that hybrids are with us for a lot longer than people currently expect. But that's a really interesting perspective on how you framed um, on how you framed emissions and technology. You know, I don't think many people would think about that if you spread those batteries over more vehicles. Um, that it actually could be better for society because we don't drive our cars as far um, or we don't use our cars for long distances as frequently as you think. Now, on that point around changing technology, I think, uh, or on discussing technology, I think it's a really good segue into what we're hearing coming out of Toyota in that, you know, they're commenting that they are making progress with solid-state batteries. And these batteries do have a longer range, um, two to three times longer than traditional electric batteries and reportedly can charge in 10 minutes. So if Toyota can commercialise and mass-produce solid-state batteries, two big ifs, but if they can, um, you know, does this turn the industry on its head? Potentially, yeah. Solid-state batteries have hugely impressive performance in lab tests and they've long been the perceived holy grail for electric vehicles. But they're really hard and really costly to make. That's why Toyota has said that when they... They're brought to market in the back half of this decade, which is the timeline they're working on. They'll initially only be on premium vehicles. But you know how manufacturing cost curves work and how what is initially high-end tech always proliferates downwards in the auto industry. If Toyota are right, then it 
genuinely has the potential to be really disruptive technology. Stepping back from that singular technology, it probably just serves to reiterate the point from earlier. Far from being incapable dinosaurs, the incumbent OEMs really are technology and R&D powerhouses to varying degrees and costs and speeds. The Toyota Group has filed more patents for solid-state batteries than anyone else globally by quite a large margin. And that's a really great point, isn't it? I think it's really easy, an easy starting point to assume that the incumbent will be disrupted. But this is a really good example of, you know, incumbents can also be the disruptors. And, you know, this is not the first time we're seeing this. You know, Microsoft is a, is a classic example of this. Yeah, which is a big evolution in the discussion versus three years ago when it was just a question of how soon these businesses would die. Without wanting to labour industry parallels, I, I really don't think that the auto industry's Nokia has been properly identified yet. <laughs> Getting back to topic before this turns into an AI, an AI podcast. Now, other trends like autonomy have have been pushed to the side. What's happening here? As you say, it's been pushed to the right. As I said last time we spoke, developing uh, an autonomous vehicle is probably amongst the hardest thing humanity has, has ever attempted. It's genuinely difficult to think of a more complex and unpredictable environment faced by the average person than sitting behind the wheel of their humble motor car on a trip to the shops. And despite some high-profile issues, particularly at GM's Cruise, which had its operating license withdrawn, you're seeing more deployments in geographically ring-fenced areas from many commercial operators. And again, it does seem to be the Chinese operators who are most advanced in commercialising these. <laughs> and and what about you or I buying an autonomous car, you know, the average person? Um, you know, when can we do the school run without having to do the school run, so to speak? <laughs> Uh, well, that's the dream. I, I can't wait. I hope it's soon. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to burst your bubble and be the harbinger of disappointment. But given the complexity and safety criticality of a fully redundant autonomous vehicle system, it's still not clear that a go-anywhere autonomous car can or will be privately owned. And I suppose Tesla's claims around this seem as fanciful and far-fetched today as they did last time we spoke. Okay, Andy, we've covered a lot of ground um, in the last sort of 30 odd minutes. So, so to pull this all together, we have uncertainty around technology, product roadmaps, and bottlenecks around infrastructure. But we know that to achieve broader climate goals, emissions in the transport sector, they need to fall. So, how are you thinking about the long term outlook for autos and what does it mean for the profitability of automakers? This sector always has some questions hanging over it. When I started looking at it many moons ago, the stocks traded on low multiples because they consistently destroyed value and burned cash over the cycle, and any boom was always followed by an equal or bigger bust. Just empirically from the financial outputs, this is a better industry today than it was then. Now, some of that's transitory because of COVID, but the late great Sergio Marchionne, then CEO of Fiat Chrysler's plea to the industry about better capital discipline ha has been heard by most, if not all, the incumbent OEMs to varying degrees. Over the past couple of years, you've seen a number of startups, IPO or DSPAC, valuations that imply great prospects. But those companies have mainly gone from 
planning world domination to scaling back growth ambitions to ration cash until they can complete their next funding round. In parallel, the incumbent OEMs have developed the platforms and technologies to meet the transition, and they've done that without materially changing their investment ratios, being the combination of cash, capex, and R&D. And those investment ratios are now expected to decline because the development becomes more incremental. So compared to where we were three years ago, this extinction event for the incumbent OEMs has been delayed. Now, in terms of profitability, it is going to decline from very high levels. Those price mix headwinds and rising EV penetration are are real headwinds, and that is known and discounted in forecasts. As most of our listeners probably know, our pragmatic value approach to investing is all about judging what's in the share price of a company, and is that an accurate reflection of its future prospects. With many of the incumbent OEMs trading on three to four times ex-cash PE multiples with sustainable double-digit free cash flow yields, these are businesses priced to disappear and relatively soon. And given everything we've talked about, that looks less likely today than it did a couple of years ago. Part of the issue with the auto sector historically is investment has always been capital allocation. And we talked about investment ratios a moment ago and how they're not blowing out to meet the transition. But the industry's approach to shareholder returns has also improved, with an increased focus on returning what is still really very healthy cash flow to shareholders. So we don't think we're naive to the threats. We're very mindful of Chinese competition and the transition. But despite this expected and modelled slide in profitability, we do think there's real value in this sector. Okay, let's bring this back to stocks. So based on your industry analysis, who are the potential long-term winners and losers? Let's start with the winners. We've had a long-standing position in Toyota. And at inception, that was based on their financial resilience, operational excellence, technical prowess. And because we thought that the EV hype would fade and the market would inevitably pivot back towards hybrids and and other ice-like technologies as as penetration started to struggle from the early adopters. That's worked, and with the strong share price performance, we've rotated some of that holding into into other names with what we think are similarly idiosyncratic cases. Hyundai Motor is, is an interesting one. They've got outstanding EV tech and a compelling hybrid offering. They're premiumizing its brand to make the brand image match up with their exceptional reliability. They've got new products with an exciting design language, and which is a fairly consistent market share gainer over the last few years in, in key markets and segments. Hyundai also stands to benefit from the attempts by the Korean authorities to increase the valuation of cheap stocks listed on the Korean market. You know, This is definitely that. It's trading a little over half book and five times earnings. Outside of Korea, if we look to the US, GM is the OEM that enjoys perhaps the best market structure of any OEM globally. Nearly all of the earnings for the auto business are from SUVs and pickups in the US. That's a very challenging market to both electrify, given customer demands, and for new entrants, given brand loyalty and and the very high market share that the incumbents enjoy. Despite all of that, they have a credible path to electrify via their Altium platform. Cruise remains an option on autonomy, and all of that is on four times, four to five times earnings, despite d- despite the PL currently being burdened by some of those investments, which should move out over time. So 
there are plenty of opportunities out there. And which automakers do you think could be vulnerable over the long term? But Tesla's in a tough spot. They've arguably over-penetrated their segments by slashing price and with it margins. And they don't have any internal combustion engine business to fall back on if penetration does slow, as it seems to be doing. And despite those price cuts of 20 to 30% in some instances, volume growth is stalling. And they have no new volume product until the $25,000 car, which is announced for 2025, but they're usually overly optimistic on, on timelines. And, but the real rub of that, of that new product is that it's axiomatic in the auto industry that lower-priced cars make less money because content doesn't scale with price. And so you might see that a lower-priced variant drives volume, but it's likely to cannibalize higher-priced models given the probable lack of brand distinction, and it may not increase earnings notably. I don't think that the market cap there has caught down to the challenged reality of that business. Tesla aside, some of the other EV startups, Rivian has also been a good short for us. The OEMs, or sorry, the EV startup OEMs are, are typically cash bonfires that have made the pivot noted earlier from planning world domination to trying to figure out how to survive in a less forgiving funding and rate environment. I think at this point I should say that even if we have a negative view on a company's equity because we believe it doesn't fairly represent the fundamentals of the business, that doesn't mean we're short it all the time. We manage the risk in the short book assiduously, particularly in volatile names like the EV startups. These are stocks which are very popular with retail investors and we respect this and think about when's the right time to step in and just as importantly, step out of these shorts. Mm. Andy, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you. Thank you for your time today and your insights. You've given us a lot to think about in the auto industry. It's been a pleasure. It's a, it's a fascinating sector. I'm lucky to cover it when there's so much going on, I think. And with so much misperception and mispricing, it creates what we think are compelling opportunities. For further information on Antipodes, head to our website, antipodes.com. And you can also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. The content in this podcast is general information only. It is not advice of any kind and doesn't take into account your personal financial situation, objectives or needs. You should seek professional advice before making any financial decisions. Stock commentary is illustrative only and not a recommendation to buy, hold or sell any security.